200 grand a year, you're still living paycheck to paycheck. That's not a money problem. That's a behavior problem. Finance, budgeting, cash flow, and investing don't have to be scary words. The We Talk Sense podcast is here to help you learn more about money and take control of your personal finances. The We Talk Sense podcast is not a financial advisor. This podcast is made for entertainment and educational purposes only. All information shared is of a general nature and does not take into account your personal situation. You should consider whether the information is appropriate for your needs and where appropriate, seek professional advice from a financial advisor. For more information, please check out wemoney.com.au slash disclaimer. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Blaze Pengjali. You are tuned in to the very final show of We Talk Sense for 2021. And of course, we're joined by my lovely co-host, Dan Chavevsky. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing wonderful, Blaze. I cannot believe that we are at the end of 2022 and it looks like we've got a ripper what? show ahead of us Did today. you time yeah. travel? Sorry, I did. Yeah, 2021. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I'm already in 2022. Um, yeah, 2021. It's been a massive one. Uh, my brain is completely fried and I'm looking forward to taking some time off. But we've got an awesome show today. How, uh, how are things looking, Blaze? Yeah, well, pretty good, Dan. We are looking at the year that's been, 2021, and we're talking financial wellness. And you know what? What a year it's been. We've seen the launch of NFTs, non-fungible tokens, if you're playing at home. We've seen El Salvador as the first country in the world to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender. Australia's house prices have done what they love doing, and that is just skyrocket in price. Will that bubble ever burst? Who knows? And there's been that whole pandemic thing. And of course, I cannot forget the ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal. So as the end of year approaches, we've decided to take a bit of a different approach for the final episode today. Recently, We Money conducted a survey to measure how Australians feel about money. So today, for the first time ever, we are inviting back some friends of the show for a fireside chat to discuss these results. So without further ado, let's welcome in our guests. First up, we have the wonderful Lacey Philippic, the founder and director of Money School and the Maker Kids Club. You may have seen her on her TEDx talk or over at Student Age where she's helped launch their financial education program. Earlier in the year, Lacey dropped by to share her wisdom about money and inspire us to take mini retirements in episode 33. Welcome, Lacey. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted to be here. So good to have you back, Lacey. Also joining us is your favourite cash-splashing, TikTok-dancing, coin-collecting teacher and friend who you may recognise by his moniker, The History of Money. How are you going, Joel? Hey, guys, I'm good. Thanks for that introduction. That's pretty funny, that one. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty accurate. You're dancing all over TikTok, throwing money around. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> Living the dream, Joel. <laughs> Now, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, Let's get into the findings. Now, our lovely guests today are here to share their opinions, thoughts, and feedback. Like on every episode, everything we say today is not financial advice, so please don't take it as such. Dan, I'm going to pass the microphone over to you. Can you give us a bit of an overview of the research and why it was conducted? What was the motivation for it? And what do you consider to be financial wellness? 
You know, why don't we do the financial world survey? We'll look in summary. We wanted to find out the thoughts and attitudes of a number of different people around Australia and their thoughts and feelings towards money. And so what we did is we surveyed about 1,046 different We Money members on their thoughts and attitudes around how they feel about their money, how they feel about debt, uh, trends around buy now later topics, which we discuss very often on the show. Uh, mm-hmm. We've got this emerging phenomena that's occurred this year, which is this crypto NFT craze, which doesn't seem to be stopping. And we asked our respondents about how they thought about crypto potentially taking over the whole financial system and giving their thoughts and seeing you know where the future of money is going, as well as talking about how much uh, people were going to spend uh, this Christmas. So it was a wide-ranging survey to get thoughts and feelings about how Aussies are feeling about their money. And if I'm really frank, you know some really honest and raw topics, especially when it came to debt. So looking forward mm. to discussing all that today with this wonderful panel. And what does financial wellness mean? Well, financial wellness is feeling at, at ease or happy with your current situation financially where you don't have to worry and stress about money. Uh, We Mm. know that worrying about money or stressing about money uh, is a huge cognitive burden to people and it affects everybody at all walks in their life. Sometimes it's more acute and momentary and sometimes it's long-term sustaining and yeah, aligned to our, our social mission and purpose of helping people live their best financial lives. We wanted to really find out, hey, what does the rest of Australia think and feel when it comes to their money? So, Dan, kick us off. How are Australians feeling about money? Well, I think the first thing that we asked was, we asked a simple question, um, how do you feel about your current financial situation? And we've got a range of different responses back, but I think the one to drill down into is that uh, we found that about a third of Australians don't feel confident with their current financial situation. And that was pretty sort of alarming when you kind of really think about the third of Aussies, we're at a population size of about 26 million people, um, you know, there's a, quite a number of people in Australia that are doing it very tough. So uh, only um, you know twenty six point seven percent of the respondents responded as being okay as well. So okay is not exactly I'm brilliant. I'm like jumping up mm. and down and celebrating my finances. Uh, it isn't quite feeling anxious, but you know it's still an alarming result. So uh, we 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 thought that was a pretty interesting understanding to the psyche of Australians. And yeah, we, we, we delved a lot deeper into the topic, but yeah, we were certainly surprised by just a number of people that were very anxious and somewhat anxious in the, in the survey results. Lacey, you work firsthand with a lot of people helping improve their financial situation and educating them. Are you seeing people feeling lacking confidence when you're working with them firsthand? Absolutely. It, it echoes what I see in my work and also when I talk to people like financial counsellors and the consumer credit societies, those kinds of things, there are a lot of people who are worried and who don't feel like they have the basic skills. And I think that's it's kind of a sad reflection on reality, but we've got a whole generation of adults in Australia that didn't get a lot of this kind of education as kids and have just fumbled through sometimes. Others have been proactive or have had good luck on their side, and so they feel mm. a lot more confident. So, yeah, I wasn't totally surprised. It's just, like you say, Dan, it's just a bit worrying to see so many people stressed. Yeah, absolutely. And, Joel, now I don't want to reduce you to just a TikTok dancing, coin-collecting uh, human of the earth, but for people that are following you to learn things about money, are you seeing are you seeing anything like this as well, or or is your audience, I suppose, a bit further removed from this and only really looking at the the novelty of collecting money rather than sharing with you how they feel about it? I think the novelty of collecting money sort of leads into that discussion of financial literacy. Anyway, I think it's a part of that we see it on face value of what what's it about. Um, it's, a, it's a form of exchange, but then you start getting into deeper questions. And so with the people I've been talking to and discussing with on 
on the social media and also outside for who I've interacted with, there is a bit of an underlying unease about how we feel about our, our financial situations, especially mm. those in my age, that, that millennial group where they're finding housing affordability or rental affordability even a struggle and and looking for, um, you know, more permanent contracts, but that's, that's becoming less and less often where they're moving towards casual and temporary contracts. So there's a lot of issues regarding job insecurity, casualization of the workforce, housing and unaffordab- unaffordability. And that's just adding a lot more stress. And on top with the pandemic as well, I know in Western Australia, we've been, we've been not too bad, but in, in terms of the rest of Australia, the unease is clearly there. And that's going to be impacting the way we, we spend, we save and invest moving forward from here. Yeah, absolutely. The housing affordability crisis is something that I would love to get to later in the show, especially chatting about how many people still have that Australian dream of owning a house. But let's chat about how people are living week to week. The survey results saw that one in three Aussies are living paycheck to paycheck while others are saving big. Dan, could you give us a bit of a breakdown on these stats in this question, please? Yeah, for sure. It was really, really interesting and fascinating to sort of look at the composition of people that live paycheck to paycheck. So the overall responses was about one in three, but when you drill down, you find out uh, based on annual household incomes, that number actually rises for certain cohort groups. So if you're a person that is earning between, say, 20 to 40 grand, uh, about 55% of those people are responding to saying that they're living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and then as you go up the income scale, it obviously reduces. But I thought something was really interesting. Even people earning over 100K plus, so 100 to 150, uh, about 20% of those people, you know, pretty well above the uh, your average uh, you know wage here in Australia, about mm. a fifth of them responded they were living paycheck to paycheck and it didn't end. We actually had a last uh, little box you could tick where if you earn more than 200 grand, and surprisingly about 6.3% of those <gasps> people um, also responded they were living paycheck to paycheck. So it just goes to show that it doesn't matter where you are on the financial spectrum, you know, people do sort of struggle with the you know, ways of just managing, you know, a budget or having, you know, heaps of debt burden that they want to pay off. And it's clearly uh, represented in, you know, every single one of the respondents that came through. So, um, yeah, pretty fascinating. And yeah, I'd love to actually throw it over to maybe Joel to begin with, because Joel, you know, sees this, I guess, from the uh, you know, kids that end up going through primary school to get their first jobs, um, you know, starting on those early incomes. And then I'd love to throw it to Lacey because Lacey then sees probably people, you know, after school in the early 20s uh, as they get their first jobs and they're starting their careers. So, yeah, Joel, do you, do, you feel, do you feel like, you know, people sort of are aware of how they're managing their money and living sort of paycheck to paycheck as they sort of, you know, get out of school into the big wide world? Yeah, I think they're getting a better understanding now than it was maybe even five years ago of what is why it's important to save, budget, plan and such. But I think you're seeing the prevalence of the living paycheck to paycheck around that sort of millennial generation and, and higher. Like my brother, for example, is a, a bank manager and he sees applications in and out with people who are earning high six-figure incomes and still living paycheck to paycheck because the wow. simple concept of you know bracket creep where people earn more money, they spend more money, they get a larger mortgage, they pay, they get a mm-hmm. high high-priced rental and higher lifestyles, and they realize, oh, wait, I should be saving a lot more money now, but instead I'm still living paycheck to paycheck because my expenses, my mortgage and all that are covering a significant proportion of my income. So coming from the younger ages and seeing seeing my students in 16 and 17 already budgeting, planning, and even investing and investing in a whole range of different assets, they're going to be far more set 
than what our generation is now comparably at the same point in time. So we're doing the interventions right now, you know, the works of Lacey and many other awesome financial literacy um, specialists out there. We're giving our students the groundings now to not to make not make the same mistakes as our generation did. Lacey, I remember from when you visited us earlier in the year, you told us a story about how you were saving 50% of every dollar since you were a teenager. So clearly you're not the kind of person that's lived paycheck to paycheck like I did for the first 27 years of my life. How do you feel about it? <laughs> Look, it's a symptom of not being able to get that buffer fund, right? This whole mm. paycheck to paycheck. And I... It's so common. And, and, you know, Joel, you've mentioned that bracket creep or comfort creep. That is exactly what happens. People, as their incomes increase, naturally tend to want to spend more. And that's because our brains aren't our friends. <laughs> um, our brains are sending us messages to say, please spend that money so I can get a hit of feel-good chemicals. And unfortunately, when you fall into that trap, it's really hard to break that cycle because you mm. then have to have a period where you go with a little bit less quality of life, a little bit lower standard of living in order to build that buffer fund up. And I think that's what you see. Like, you know, that 6.3% of people over 200 grand a year, over 200 grand a year, you're still living paycheck to paycheck. That's not a money problem. That's a behavior problem. Um, and it's a really good sign that, you know, until you have those really good behaviors in place, you're not going to get ahead. But that said, it's a no surprise to see so many people on low incomes, like looking at the cost of living, the cost of renting, the mm. cost of even food at the moment. A lot of people are just forced to spend every dollar they've got because they haven't got any capacity to save. And, you know, like, yeah, I started when I was young because I could. Um, mm. So if you are in that paycheck to paycheck and it's because you have to, please don't beat yourself up. It's not your fault. Um, but finding space later, if you do get a pay increase to try and save some, so you get that buffer fund, which allows you then not to be so paycheck to paycheck, will be beneficial. But patience, everybody. Don't beat yourself up if that's what's happening to you. Absolutely. I love that your mention of the buffer fund. We actually did, uh, we did ask respondents about buffer funds or emergency funds or rainy day funds or the, oh my gosh, I need help now funds, whatever you want to call it. Uh, <laughs> they're great to have. So the results were that four in 10 Aussies don't have an emergency fund. But if we flip that and look at it and go, you know what, that means six in 10 Aussies or respondents to this survey do have an emergency fund, which I think is is pretty fantastic. Joel, you're, you work a lot with teenagers and, you know, you're teaching and you're at the Cricket Pitch as well. Are you seeing younger people adopt things like emergency funds or buffer funds or is that still something that's a bit of a far-fetched dream for people in the younger age bracket? I think at the younger age bracket is still a little bit of a far-fetched dream, but they do have that spare income and they do want that money to work for them. So rather because their expenses aren't that much until they start, you know, working full-time and living independently and, you know, having a family and all that kind of thing, their expenses are still relatively low. And so they won't be living as much paycheck to paycheck as as you grow further later in your life. So those kids are learning to save well and they're learning to utilise that money well and get what they want but they're also wanting their money to work for them. So they're realizing now putting their money in the bank is not going to do anything for them. They're looking at, can we put our money into the stock market? Can we put our money in some ETFs or whatever? And and they're learning from different people and how to do that. And because there's that democratization of the learning process regarding that investing and such, they're able to make the money work for them much earlier, which is great. Mm-hmm. But again, that, that gap's going to continue widen as those later on in their in their life, they don't get to have that opportunity because of, of whatever the situations are from there. So that emergency buffer fund probably doesn't apply to the teenage years just yet. 
but as long mm. but they do recognize the need for it as as expenses will grow and change for that as a, as a bunch of students who graduated five six seven years ago and now in their mid-20s they realize okay wait i need to start putting some extra money aside and putting away two to three months of expenses so that if i do lose my job that money is there that i can rely on and still be able to um, live life essentially yeah, during that, so this is a podcast medium, but while we record, we can see each other's faces. So for you listening at home, I would like you to know that when Joel mentioned that his students are wondering, looking for workplaces they can look their, put their money that is in a bank account and look at the stock market, Lacey had a beaming grin across her face. Lacey, what is it about this that excites you? I'm so delighted to see people getting into this early. And look, there's a couple of reasons. One is you're going to make mistakes. If you make them while you're young, when the stakes are very low, like you're still at home, you're still going to have a roof over your head, you can still eat. Even if you lose everything, I'm like delighted because mistakes Mm. are part of the way we learn. And so the sooner you start when those stakes are low, the better because you're going to have better outcomes later. You'll learn from those mistakes. I look back on my first property purchase at 19 and all the mistakes I made with that, I learned so (laughs) much. And it was so low stakes because it was only a $100,000 apartment. If I was trying to buy my first property at 500 grand and made those same mistakes, it could have been much more catastrophic. So that's what really excites me about it. Amazing, guys. And I, th- I think as we you know, move away from emergency funds, one of the other big topics that came out of the survey was uh, about uh, how much people worry about debt. And so about six out of 10 Australians uh, that responded to the survey that have debt worry about debt. And the other concerning factor was is that about half the respondents worry about debt on a weekly basis. Lacey, throwing it over to you, you know, what are the impacts of this level of financial stress that's p- placing on you know, us as human beings and as consumers? This is really worrying for everybody. There was some very interesting research done by Princeton in 2013, and they looked at the impact of financial stress on people's brains, and they discovered that it lowers your IQ by 13 points. And I don't know about everybody what? listening, but I can't afford to lose 13 IQ points. Yeah, yeah. That's this no, cognitive I can't classic. afford it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I need those IQ points to make good decisions in all areas of my life, right? Mm. And, and it is all areas. But what happens basically is if you think of your brain like it's CPU on the computer, it's chewing up space in the background with this worry. Will I be able to afford rent? Can I eat? Can I afford to send the kids to school? You know, Mm. that kind of stuff sits in the back of your mind and it reduces your cognitive capacity. Now, the good news is that it's temporary. So the moment that you relieve that stress, they've found that your IQ returns. So it's not a permanent hampering, which is good. But, But it means that if we've got this many people worrying about debt, imagine the worst decisions they're making everywhere, like not just to do with money. Their family decisions, their their career choices, they're like everything gets affected by this. And that's why I think this is a really, really big problem. And of all the things I saw in this report, this was the one that made me go, wow, if we've got more than half of people in Australia losing some of that cognitive capacity, it's really bad for us. We need to do something about it. Yeah, it's the it's the unnecessary stress as well. Like you don't have the peace of mind. It, you're right. It reduces your capacity to make great decisions. And it's like anything when you're tired, when your resources are low, when you're emotionally drained or depleted. You know, I'm not surprised at all that finances. I mean, I am surprised that it can lower your IQ by 13 points, but I'm 
at the same time, I'm like, you know what? It makes sense because I've seen that in my own life as well. When I was living paycheck to paycheck, when I was uneducated about money, which was not that long ago, I definitely felt those pressures. And now I can just blame the dumb decisions I was making in that time of my life on my lack of the 13 IQ points I must have been missing during that time, I think. (laughs) That's fair. I think take that. I think, you know, like, but that's also a big point for people is acknowledge that the decision that you made in that situation is not going to necessarily be the decision you would have made if you weren't under that stress. And that's where I think people often beat themselves up and say, I'm bad with money. No, you're not bad with money. You might have made some bad decisions when you were really stressed, but so would everybody. And for the record, Everybody has a point at which that mm. stress kicks in. You know, the people that are make hundreds of millions of dollars that there is an, there's a point at which that financial stress will hit them. So you're not unique by having that happen to you. It's just a fact of having a brain. Thanks, financial stress. Mm. I wonder what that point for is for Mr. Musk or Mr. Bezos. I wonder how, how much money, <laughs> at, at what point do they stress out? It's a really good question. You should ask them. That'd be a good podcast. <laughs> what do you think, Joel? What point do you think it is? You know, three hundred um, billion dollars, or <laughs> something like maybe, maybe once they start losing like half their wealth out of nowhere or whatnot. You know, he, he, Bezos probably felt stressed when he had to um, when he had his divorce with his wife. It's like, all right, I've lost half my money. God, no, I'm, I'm stuffed. You know, um, it's. You make a great point. Speaking <laughs> speaking of losing money and debt, let's chat about credit cards. Now, this from the survey results, we found that 43.6% of respondents have an active credit card with 13.6% of them having two or more. Uh, within that as well, one in three Australians have missed out or made a late payment to a credit card bill in the last 12 months. Now, credit cards we're not they can be used well and they can be used to your advantage and we've discussed that on the show but we've also discussed how a lot of the time we can get caught up in consumer debt and you can end up taking from your future self by putting yourself into debt using credit cards Joel how do you feel about this and do you find it concerning that even though credit card use has been declining it still feels like really high numbers do you think it's concerning how much we're relying on credit especially in 2021 I think it's a little bit scary of how disposable and how accessible it is. I think mm. the ability for banks to approve credit card applications in such lightning speed, as and not just credit cards, but also buy now, pay later um, services as well, that you know people having multiple credit cards, people having multiple BNPL accounts as well. It is pretty frustrating. This is coming from someone who at one point held three different credit cards and had quite a lot of debt. Now I don't have any credit card debt where it's it's addictive. It's like, you know, the rewards programs and the fact that you can go buy what you want straight away and worry about it later. It's like, but, you know, I never missed a credit card payment such, but there are people who, who use it as a form of dependence. And it's mm. it's pretty scary that the way that they're marketed, and they're not so much directly marketed. You don't see so much on TV ads or such, but you see a lot of web ads and you see people talking about it and then the lure of frequent flyer points where we've Qantas Virgin and get, the, mm-hmm. and get what they need. It's um, it, it becomes an addiction like sugar, I guess, in a way. And so the education needs to be there or has been there towards the younger generations, but also in terms of millennial generation where, okay, what is the best way of using a credit card? How do you build your credit score? Um, making sure you're paying your full amount at the end of the month, all that kind of thing versus those who are getting trapped. And how do we get those that are trapped in the cycle out? Mm. 
Joel, that's so important. I think the, the, the topic that you've touched on there is uh, the amount and the frequency uh, that are being used, particularly by Palator products. And so in the survey, uh, we asked people, uh, have you used Palator?" And about 72.8% said that they did. Now, bearing in mind that a lot of these people responding are probably uh, skewed towards a younger demographic, but still, mm. it's a pretty alarming number that you know three and four of the respondents that have used this type of product before, and there's no shortage of these types of products now. Afterpay, ZipPay, Sezzle, Hum, the list is almost endless. But the really alarming point that really came out of the survey was about half or 46.5% of the members uh, had more than one account, so two mm. uh, or more one Apple providers. That's a pretty alarming number, only because we've got credit cards, uh, we've got buying Apple later. There's this emergence of this new category called early wage access, where you can take out you know money before your payday. Uh, there's obviously pros and cons to all of these products, but the alarming thing is that we're having a lot of these products that we've got to manage mm. on a very regular basis. Um, Lacey, what do you think in terms of just what you see right now in terms of maybe some of the work that you've done with consumer advocacy groups around the awareness and literacy of, of, of just the number of accounts that people have to manage, especially with debt? Yeah, it's terrifies me, really worries mm-hmm. me. This is one area that I um, have growing concerns about. And you've touched on that point there of having that two or more accounts. The problem with buy now, pay later is that there's no obligation on them to check how many other accounts you have. Like the biggest one of these, you can get thirty grand. <laughs> you know, there's I think there's nineteen 30, providers. Yeah, one of the providers grand. will let you get thirty grand. Yeah, you're kidding. Now, yeah, and they charge interest, by the way. But um, like that, we're talking about not small amounts of debt necessarily. Some of them are small, but that said, if you had ten of them, small amounts of debt, it's the same as having a whopping great credit card, isn't it? So, I, look, I, everything I see with buy now pay later, they need to come under the national debt code. Like it just has to happen. I their code of practice, I find wishy washy, and just not enough um, teeth in it. They need to be under the debt code. I understand that will increase the cost of their provision, but they need to be just like credit cards where if you do get a credit card, they've at least had to check that you have other credit products and have to decide whether you're approved or not. Now, whether they make the best decision or not for the individual is another discussion. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, at least they're obligated to check. And if then, you know, if it turns out they've done the wrong thing, which is what happens with the consumer credit societies, you know, over in Western Australia, we consumer credit legal society of Western Australia, and they will represent people who get into trouble with debt. And I've seen some fantastic cases out of them. You know, they've had people excused because banks were predatory and other lenders were predatory. And these people walk away with none of that debt and, and are able to carry on their lives instead of going bankrupt. They don't, you just don't have that with buy now, pay later. It drives me absolutely bonkers. Um, and I think it's also this idea that people see that they're not paying interest. Look, I agree, all debt is just a tool. And there are people who are not in a situation to use it wisely and they're borrowing too much from future you. And if that's the case, you should avoid buy now, pay later. You should avoid the wages access. You should avoid credit cards. If you use them well, they're wonderful. I, I'll always pick a credit card for the fraud protection I get. It, it just far outweighs the fraud protection on any other transaction that I could mm. do online. And I do a lot of online transactions, so I'd much rather use a credit card. Um, but I have my system set up so I never pay interest. And I think that's another thing that you might consider next year. It's just occurred to me listening to you all. All repayments are made on time is great, but is that the minimum repayment or is that the full amount? Because I'd love to know Mm. how many people are paying interest because interest is the thing that breaks you. And even though it's not called interest with buy now, pay later, you're still paying fees and late fees and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I kind Mm. of I worry about this section and I hope people are aware of what they're signing up for. 
Lacey, I love what you how you share about the credit cards, right? So I I haven't ever had a credit card because I absolutely cannot trust myself. I know my limits and trusting myself with a credit card is not what something I, I'm actually capable of. So I haven't got one. I hopefully will never get one unless I somehow master self-control. But the way I see credit cards is like a gym membership, right? You get them, you got the best intentions and then sh- you know, two weeks in, all of a sudden you're not going five days a week or you're not paying minimum repayments and you're sort of, you get a little bit lenient with yourself. And it is so easy to be lenient with ourselves. You know, we go, oh, I've had a hard week or I had a really big day. I don't need to go to the gym or, you know, I just needed that Splendor in the Grass ticket this year. So I will put that on the credit card and then I will pay it a little bit too late and end up paying twice as much for my festival ticket by the time I've paid all the interest on it, you know? So that's yeah. how I feel about credit cards. <laughs> Which is fair. But for you then, Blaze, consider yes. getting a very low limit. Consider getting a credit card with a $500 or $1,000 limit that you can't rack up a lot. And even if yep. you've got to pay it off before you use it each time, at least you then still get the fraud protection. But there's no reason to have these $10,000 limits. Go get a little baby one um, if you ever decide to do it. Not that I'm saying you should because it's great <laughs> that you know yourself. <laughs> but you don't have to go for high limits and they're not actually allowed to promote them to you anymore if you opt out and say, I don't want to be told you can increase my limit. Um, that's been legislated now. So that's one advantage versus a few years ago. All right, great. Joel, have you got something to say? Yeah, I just want to quickly go to buy now, pay later um, part because Earlier in the year, there was a parliamentary committee investigating buy now pay later, and, and it's and it's um, how it works in, in the Australian um, system. And the biggest thing is the fact that it's not in the, in the code of conduct is it's crazy. But the other thing is that the the regular the regulatory stuff needs to be adhere um needs to be put in by ASIC. And ASIC noted that because they're not subject to responsible lending obligations, buy now pay later operators are not required to consider the income of existing debts of consumers. This means they can offer finance to consumers who cannot afford to repay and that a consumer who's in default can still get credit from another provider. Now, that is very, very scary. That They've openly mm-hmm. said that in a parliamentary committee and obviously, there needs, like, like, like I said, there needs to be more teeth, not from, from our lawmakers, to put a put big controls on these um on, on these companies to stop this type of lending. That sounds like making a deal with the devil, making a deal that you potentially can't fulfill. It's like the, the story of the man that um, trades 20 years of his life in exchange for spider silk. I can't even remember what I'm referencing to all the sci-fi nerds out there that also enjoy the same books as I do. I hope you know what I'm referencing. But there was a story of a man who got a really nice product from a spider or the devil or something, and the price was 20 years of his life. He assumed that it was the 20 years of the end of his life, but in fact, they stole his youth. So that's how I feel like credit card companies are, or, or buy now, pay later companies are, by not checking because they're not doing, it's essentially lacking due diligence, right? You're selling someone a product that could really impact them, like severely harm them financially um, with no with no background checks, I suppose. Exactly. And the other thing that really sucks is, at least with a credit card, you might get a good credit rating if you pay it off. With buy now, mm. pay later, it's only downside. They don't give you a positive ranking, but they can give you a negative ranking if you miss a payment. So like it's, mm. it's like this double whammy. But I totally agree with Joel. It's just ASIC saying that is terrifying. And I get that we've got this big personal responsibility message coming at the moment, but some people, that's not fair. It's not reasonable. If they're in that financial stress and their IQ's a bit affected, it's mean. It's mean to put it on them. We should have some more mm. checks and balances. Mm. Moving on from buy now, pay later, 
Now, Joel, you are an avid coin collector, so there's barely a time we see you wearing something other than your iconic Aussie money printed hoodie that you got custom made. (laughs) What are your feelings towards the fact that 29.9% of survey respondents think that crypto will eventually replace traditional money? Do you think this is likely or a little bit disillusioned? I think it is going to head that way, as much as I hate to say it. Um, it's whether how regulated it's going to be. That's my biggest question overall, rather than having this whole decentralization of finance overall and and just give it straight you know, between provider and consumer and, and link between, there's currently no safeguards whatsoever. And that's the thing that probably scares me most and what's probably why I haven't dipped my toe in the, into the crypto side of it, but I do have a fair understanding of it. And it's becoming a point now where central banks are starting to investigate, you know, Bank of England, I've started a lot of investigating on it. You know, the Chinese Central Bank have done it. RBA have are investigating a form of e-Australian dollar. Um, mm-hmm. It is going to happen, but it's just the way it's going to look like in the future and what regulations will be placed on it. You know, we're seeing, I think the, my biggest concern in a financial literacy point of view is that a lot of people are investing in crypto for the sake of speculation and hopefully get a quick gain rather than mm-hmm. looking at what the purpose of crypto is and, you know, allowing it for the ease of business and ease of transactions and, and to decentralize, you know, get rid of the middlemen in for out. So, you know, for example, if we go to the future, if we want Australian dollars in our wallet, we can go direct to the Reserve Bank in our digital wallet rather than having go to banks as intermediary. So banks are wow. going to be scared. In, in middle, and this came out on that, that came out in a Fairfax article this morning um, where they were discussing that. But on the other hand, there are also massive taxation implications where people are getting called up by the tax office because of the profits they're making on crypto. And because these these funds are being put deposited into bank accounts, the ATO is asking questions because obviously the bank accounts are linked to their tax form number and people are getting caught up with massive, massive tax bills. So, so there's people who know a lot of that about it. There's people who don't know much but are dabbling in it and are making profits, but they're getting caught out as well at the same time. So the education surrounding around that is lacking and needs to be improved significantly. There was lots of nods from Dan and Lacey during that little spiel of Joel's. What have you guys got to think about it? Okay, so the first thing I wanted to say about the cashless thing, I got to see Adrian Orr, who is the Reserve Bank of New Zealand's governor, speak in 2019 at a financial capability conference. And he talked about how in New Zealand they're never going to be cashless, but there will be less cash. I really hope that Australia adopts that. Big reason for that is we have, and last time I saw the stats, I don't know what it is now, 8% of Australians didn't have a bank account. They were unbanked. And that was because they didn't have access to ID, they didn't have permanent addresses, all those things that you have to have to get a bank account. So this is sometimes it's kids who've run away from home, um, so they don't have their birth certificates or mum and dad's approval, stuff like that. If we Mm. go to completely electronic, you are hampering potentially 8%, which is a large proportion of our population. I have to check that stat to make sure it's right, but I think going cashless would be a mistake. I understand why banks want to do it because they can control inflation if everything's electronic. The thing that stuffs them with inflation at the moment is that we keep putting money under our mattresses. Um, So being able to manage that is really interesting. The other thing I add is it's in our interest to have a blockchain managing our our money because we pay at the moment between one and a half and two percent to the banks to manage our ledgers. That's the cost of finance. Has been for 130 years. There's great research on that from NYU Stern. Um, Professor David Yermax, a great one to look at for all that stuff. But it means that it's actually better for us as consumers because we won't pay that premium. I just worry about this idea of um, it completely eliminating cash. I hope that doesn't happen. 
That is so true, Joel and Lacey. And I think some very valid points there when it comes into the safety and security of these protocols. I think uh, right now we're in this experimental phase of people learning more about crypto. Um, I certainly feel that uh, the respondents in the younger cohort were way more enthusiastic than, say, the uh, people that were a little bit older in the survey and you know, looking to those themes. Um, a lot of people now are experimenting with getting 100 bucks, $200 in a Coinbase account, uh, figuring out crypto for the very first time. But what was really interesting, going back to that topic that Joel discussed, which was decentralized finance. So for those who don't know this term, basically what DeFi means is uh, we live in a future where there is no intermediary where we all become our own banks and that we transfer and conduct our financial lives between one another as opposed to having a bank in between that transaction. And the awareness of the survey response was about one in four that had heard the term DeFi before. Uh, and when we drill down into the awareness of those people that knew DeFi, overwhelmingly they were Gen Zs and millennials. Um, Joel, do you feel like there's some type of rebellion that's happening here amongst our younger generation as they see, you know, maybe their parents that have struggled through the 2008 financial crisis and see that for the very first time? Is there a sense of let's up, let's upend the system into and create something new and we will own this as opposed to, you know, the big, big bad banks? Oh, the rebellion is real. It is definitely real. If you look across the younger generation, you look at the social media platforms, you look at Reddit and stuff, you know, even in the stock market where they're trying to take it back, you know, you know you've heard about the subreddit Wall Street Bets where they just manipulate the share prices by people just piling on and all that kind of thing. But I think people mm. are just sick and tired of someone else controlling the money. The fact that we've got to pay someone else to hold our money and every time we use mm. our money, we still got to pay someone else. So, you know, all the merchant fees and the transaction fees and all that kind of thing where it's like, no, we want to take control of our own funds now. This is what it should be. It's our money. We work hard for it. Why should we start paying people chunks of money back and forth for it? So the younger generation at the start, they're looking at investing in it, but they're very excited to see what the future is going to be when it comes into a form of a day-to-day transactional use or the form of engaging in a transfer of wealth, loans, and all that kind of thing. They're very, very curious, and they're, and they're also getting involved in it and such. And the fact that you've got people who are now, like I said before, there's a de- democratization of learning about finance, and people are getting access to information a lot more easier. They're learning a lot more quicker. And I feel people at the at the older end of the spectrum, they're not realizing the damage that, not damage, but the opportunities that these younger people are going to take upon and disrupting the, the, disrupting the system overall. So this is where governments need to get involved and be more educated and get more people involved and to start creating some sort of regulatory framework so we don't see some sort of chaos that goes on back and forth and seeing the continued volatility that we're seeing in the financial markets at the moment, both in cryptocurrency and all, and also our regular equities as well. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, Lacey, any, any predictions about crypto that you, you see in the future? Look, I think it's a fascinating space. It's in its infancy. Um, I treat it like the Wild West at the moment. I, you know, we hear stories about um, people losing money through hackers on the wallets, right? Which, you know, like I've, I've been on ABC Radio and had callback from people who've had it happen to them in Perth. One caller had um, $34,000 disappear in $250 <gasps> increments. They had a VPN. They had two-factor authentication, but they didn't have cold storage. And so these people watched wow. their, their house deposit disappear. And the, the it was, I won't name the um, wallet, but it was one of the big ones, starting with C, was like, so sad, can't help you. And people expect, and I saw a recent one where a lady, I think, lost 100 grand when one of the wallets collapsed. That was her housing deposit. And they expect the regulator to step in. There's no regulator. 
It's not under any jurisdiction at the moment, and that's what really worries me. I'm interested in seeing, like you say, Joel, that regulatory framework is going to make all the difference here. I'm excited to see blockchain everywhere. I don't think our mm. current crypto, and when we talk about crypto at the moment, we're talking mostly about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all that stuff. It's all cowboy land. So I get the whole, like, buy a little bit and have some speculation because it would be sad to miss out. But I'm looking forward to it becoming mainstream and a bit more regulated, which I know is completely against the theory of DeFi, right? Getting rid of all the regulatory <laughs> stuff. And we have this great democracy. But unfortunately, I think we need it because otherwise people do the wrong thing, like these hackers that are stealing people's wallets. Mm, definitely a lot of perverse incentives and uh yeah really interesting that the awareness is high we'll see how it all plays out but now if we you know turn get out of the metaverse get out of the crypto crazy land and come back <laughs> down here to reality uh which is we have to eat three meals we have to put a roof over our heads it is still the great australian dream uh in terms of 41 percent of the respondents saying that the next major purchase is a property uh, whilst demand is high, it does seem out of reach for a lot of Australians with about 85% of these survey respondents saying that housing is unaffordable. Uh, the biggest state with no surprise being New South Wales coming in at 87% of people saying that they couldn't Yikes. or they, they felt that wasn't affordable. Uh, and Darwin, not far away, wasn't any better, still at 70%, but that's the range between 70 to 87 And so clearly there is a housing affordability crisis on our hands Lacey, throwing it over you first because you see this probably, you know, first up. How do people feel about property ownership today given the fact that we've got record prices nationally? And then, Joel, maybe over to you to to cap in this is that how are young people feeling about money today? Uh, and when it comes to saving up for a housing deposit, do they ever feel they can buy a property? Are they exploring different methods of, you know, home ownership? It would be interesting to get both your take on this uh, pretty alarming trend. Mm, it's a big one, isn't it? Because I, I guess we've all heard that story probably from grandparents or parents. Own your own home and then you're safe. No one can kick you out. And so I think that's why it gets promoted as this great Australian dream. I look, I'm going to challenge the dream straight up. It is on average more expensive to own than to rent the same property. And Really? Well, you, yeah, like the house I sit in right now would probably rent for about $700 a week and a mortgage for someone that took out a 20%, um, 80% mm. standard would be 900 to a, a grand a week. And then on top of owning your home, you've got rates, you've got insurance, you've got all the maintenance, all that's the stuff that you don't necessarily pay when you are renting. So on average, that's what happens. The idea is that as time goes on, because you took the debt out at this particular price and that doesn't increase, that you, you're protected from those pricing increases. But when I've looked at the numbers, I've done a couple of scenarios at some low and high ends. Um, when I was writing the book, actually, it was about people have to put up this big deposit, right? You're putting up, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and you're not investing that money because a home is not mm. going to pay you an income. It's, uh, you know, I guess everyone thinks of it as an asset, but it's really not for financial independence apart from removing your rent. By the time you've mm. paid off that mortgage, then you're supposed to be home and hose. You've just got those, you know, the rates, insurance, et cetera, that you're paying. But unfortunately, most of us move more often. And so where the, you know, the baby boomers and the generation prior used to pay off their home and stay put, they got mm. all that benefit of paying off the mortgage and then having low housing costs. We don't. We we move more often and therefore each time we're having these massive transaction costs in terms of stamp duty and agents fees and we're taking on a new mortgage. So on average it is probably cheaper to rent. I think our problem is we don't have long-term leases. It's a really popular thing in Europe to have a long-term lease. We're talking about decades-long leases and protected wow. rent. 
We don't have that in Australia. I think that's what's missing. Um, I don't think it's necessarily should be sold as the Australian dream anymore because we're so much more able to move around and we should, whereas a home used to anchor you. I think that that idea that it's the dream sort of comes from a time when you used to stay put in your same house and same suburb for for many, many decades, and I just don't see that happening as much anymore. That's my opinion. It's terrifying, and they are correct that the ratio of house price to income has increased quite a lot. I think it's more than doubled in the last 40 years. So they're right. It is less affordable now. So people aren't imagining this. That's why I'd say find a different dream and invest that massive amount of capital in something else that will pay you an income. Joel, just before um, we get your thoughts on that, I'd like to share because I actually saw some stats recently specifically related to the Perth housing affordability crisis and um, ratio of median house prices to salary. So back in 1981, the median house price in Perth was $43,000 and average income was $15,000, just over $15,000. Now, fast forward to 2021, the median house price is $548,000, but the average national income is sitting at 93000 So you can see dramatically in, in 1981, it's three times the national average uh, salary. And then here we are in 2021 and it's, you know, five times larger. So the housing affordability crisis is absolutely real. How do you feel about it, Joel? From from what I know from my students and from what I know from my friends around my age and all that kind of thing, like Lacey said, that whole concept of the Australian dream needs to be completely redefined. What is the new Australian dream? And they want people want to travel and they want experiences. They, they value experiences more than tangible physical objects now. And that is being permeated right through into the housing market where people are realising, wait, I can't get my four by two on a quarter acre block, 10 Ks in the city. You know, they can't do that because it's going to cost them 800 to a million dollars in, in, in Perth, you know? So they're looking at ways of, okay, I'm going to start with a smaller house and then I'm just going to build up and build up and build up. And like Lacey said, people are going to keep continue moving, you know? They'll go in Perth, for example, they'll go buy a house in, in Midvale or Brabham or whatever, and they'll wait to go up. They'll wait for the train line to be built and et cetera. Cool, sell the house. Let's move, upgrade to something else. Let's upgrade to something else. And and those, I've got people with friends who are my age, they've already moved house twice or three times, already doing that thing because they've had capital growth in their property because of the increase in property values in recent times, but then they're just going to get themselves in more debt. So that mortgage payment period, that 30 or 25 years or whatever it is doing, they get pushed and pushed and pushed. And they end up paying a mortgage for the rest of their life. So like Lacey said, those housing costs aren't going to change for a very long, very long time. So what people need to realize now is that, okay, how do we afford that home ownership? You know, people are moving on to start and people are looking at drawing equity from their parents' houses, for example, you know, that they paid for the houses, for example, you know, my parents paid for their house for $150,000 back in 95, and now it's 850000 And so mm. people are using their parents, they're fortunate enough to draw on their equity, become guarantors on the property that they build and find better ways to, to you know, get into a property market without having to save 20% deposit or save 10% and pay um, LMI, for example. So the people are looking for better ways to get into the property market in terms of saving. Then first, the mindset is, oh, I'm going to save for a car. Once I save for a car, I'm going to save for a house. That's straight up. But... That said, they're looking at better ways of saving. And rather than just saving, they're looking to invest their way towards that. And that's what it looks at our previous discussion where people are losing housing deposits for crypto and all that kind of thing. We're mm-hmm. just going to be a little bit careful in how we're approaching them and how do we educate people the, the best way for them to afford their housing, um, to afford their house that they want and 
and what's the steps after that as well. Lacey and Joel, you've both provided some really valuable insights there. And I've got to say, my when I, a year ago, my Australian dream was to become a homeowner one day. Uh, with recent insights from the last couple of minutes of what you guys have shared, I've got to say my Australian dream has changed. As someone that moved home during COVID um, and hasn't left, thanks, Mum, I think my Australian dream is now to just live at home forever and uh, <laughs> test to my mother as long as I possibly can. <laughs> Hopefully she doesn't listen to this episode and kick me out, but we'll see, <laughs> see where I'm recording from in the new year, hey? All right, we've got a couple of stats to, to, to wrap up. Dan, what is the biggest concern for Aussies looking towards 2022? Well, the biggest concern was the cost of living. So about over, just over two-thirds of people said that the cost of living, things like utilities, groceries, and general household items are of concern. And a little sub-theme underneath that was uh, inflation. So about a third of respondents also have a fear about inflation in 2022. We know that inflation now is becoming even more prevalent at 40-year highs in the United States, emerging in the United Kingdom and also the European Union. But of course, we can probably see it here. If anyone's gone to the shops recently, you know, buying grocery items and apples and pears these days, they're not as cheap as they used to be. So it certainly is creeping in in certain, certain places. But I think to what Joel mentioned at the start of the show was job prospects. We are moving into more of a casualization of the workforce, more flexible working arrangements. COVID has certainly accelerated that, and that is weighing on about a quarter of the respondents' minds. So that, I think, was the interesting understanding about uh, the concerns that people hold into 2022. However, uh, in lieu of those concerns, we also are seeing uh, some great optimism where people are actually looking to prioritize their savings. So when we ask the question, over the next 12 months, what do you intend to do? Uh, and prioritizing the savings came in at 60%, which is fantastic. Uh, investing in the share market, so becoming more of a participant uh, as a owner, as opposed to just being a worker. Uh, and of course, the continuing theme of cryptocurrencies, of digital tokens, uh, and also NFTs. Uh, and for those who are missing, peering out of that over window on a plane uh, traveling overseas, uh, a strong desire for people to get out and about with about a third of respondents coming in there as well. So a lot of optimism for 2022, as much as there are some things that and challenges for, for 2021 that we're putting behind us and hopefully you know, move into the new year in, in, a, in a prosperous way. Uh, Lacey and Joel, what are you guys? What have you guys got in store for 2022? What are you guys looking uh, forward to the most? I agree on the travel. <laughs> <laughs> that would be good. It's so delightful to see those results, isn't it? Especially the saving and the investing. It's awesome. Um, I'm excited to be sharing more content on some of the topics we've discussed today through Student Edge. So if um, anyone out there is a student and is eager to learn about, particularly buy now, pay later, investing and budgeting, there's courses on those. That's been something I've been really excited about getting to start to share more financial education through amazing organisations like Student Edge. So hopefully more of that in 2022. What about you, Joel? So my school's given me an opportunity to start a financial literacy program, a bit more in depth for year 11 and 12 at my school now. So hopefully next year I'll get to implement that in, in detail. I'm currently working with a couple of people from other schools to to do what work that what they've done. So a friend of mine who works at Ashdale, he's worked with the Barefoot Investor and we're sort of working together to develop something that's pretty strong um, to deliver within our school as part of our sort of, we've got a thing called Cognitive Curriculum where the boys learn about you know, mental health, well-being, um, physical health, consent and stuff, but we're also adding financial literacy to that as well, which is really great. Um, personally, TikTok, I'm just happy to see where it goes. I think it's, it's been cra- pretty crazy from where it started mm-hmm. to where it is now. And I'm probably, I'm actually going to be appearing at Hard Quiz at some point during um, <gasps> the year, 
next year. Don't know when. That's they'll just cool. they'll let me know. But that'll be pretty cool for that. So, so it's going to cool. be interesting. Twenty twenty two. I can't believe how twenty twenty one has been. But I think twenty twenty two is going to be even better. And they're going to finish twenty twenty two with um long service leave as well, which is great. Amazing. Travel, yeah. Amazing. Um, I wish we had recorded the video for this today because I've got to say, watching, especially Lacey, your facial expressions, <laughs> you get so genuinely. The reason we invited you to today is because not only do we love you and you're fantastic friends on the show and you're both so knowledgeable and have such great insights about money and how, how people think and how the world works, but also you just are so passionate and hearing what you've both got in store for 2022, it's encouraging financial education and helping others, which is obviously what Dan and I care so much about, which is why we come back week after week with We Talk Sense to encourage chatting about money, encourage financial literacy and help people like ourselves and like you listening to get better with your money so you can live the life that you want to live. So thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure. I love chatting to you guys. I've got a big smile on my face. So thanks for joining us. Blaze, we could not agree more. Uh, Many thanks to Lacey and Joel for joining us in today's show. Lacey and then Joel. Lacey, how do we learn more about you? Where do we find you? Head to moneyschool.org.au. That would be great. Awesome. How about you, Joel? Uh, for me, just go on to um, TikTok at the history of money and on Instagram at the history of underscore money because someone took my handle on Instagram. So there you go. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> annoying. How rude. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, guys, it was amazing to have you guys on today's show. Uh, please do uh, stay tuned for a massive installment that we've got coming up in 2022. Lacey, before we started recording, uh, encourage us to do a physical event that might happen. Uh, and we'd love to have you guys back on the show, maybe in physical format, uh, given that we um, are all here in Perth and should be able to do so. So we're looking forward to that. Thank you, Lacey. Thank you, Joel. It was great to have you. Oh, thanks for having us. It was great. Thanks, guys. A good time. Cheers. Thank you so much for tuning into the final episode of We Talk Sense for 2021. If you want to improve your financial situation, be sure to download the We Money app. It's a completely free personal budgeting tool that makes managing your money super simple. Download it now from the Google Play or Apple App Store. If you use the code word podcast on sign up, you'll earn $5 when you connect an eligible bank account. Also, Spotify have just released a specky new feature where you can rate the podcast that you listen to on the Spotify app. So if you would kindly send us a big five stars, we'd be super stoked. We'll even give you a shout out on the podcast. That's it from us this year. Whether it's your first time listening or you've joined in for every episode this year, we are so grateful for you joining us. So we'll be back on the 3rd of January, just right after New Year's, with a very special episode. We'll catch you on the 3rd of Jan. Have a fantastic break. See ya.